In the streaming world's War on Nostalgia, the Revival series is represented by two separate yet equally important groups. The returning characters who get you to tune in, and the new characters who will eventually replace them. These are their stories. And welcome back to Streamageddon, the podcast that will always sustain your objection. Uh, I'm your host, Chris Barlow, joined with my co-host, Diane. Hello, Diane. Hi, it's great to be here. It is great to be here uh, in a a week full of um, really dramatic and upsetting news, and I'm just talking about the episode of Law & Order we just watched. I have no idea what else is going on in the world. I would love to turn off my brain and have that true for me, too. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to just tell myself that. I I broke out the bubbly to to celebrate the return of Law & Order. You you just saw that over the Zoom. I I am fully tuning out everything except... And it, it feels pretty good. I think you've made a really great choice. Thank they'll you. rip, they'll rip the headlines for us. I know. Listen, listen. There's there's a war today, but in three weeks it will just be an episode of Law and Order. They rip those headlines so fast. They sure seem to. It's impressive. It's a skill. But we have to talk about the news, the you know other news before we get there. Not the news news, the streaming news. To be clear, this is a podcast about streaming, uh, streaming TV. And today we, we watched a TV show live, live on linear television, which is a, a strange uh, phrase to come out of my mouth. How did that feel? You know, I can't remember the last time I watched live television. I watched Abbott Elementary live this week. If I'm home on Tuesday night, I watch Abbott Elementary live now. I'm 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 obsessed. And why shouldn't you? You deserve nice things. Thank you very much. And we all deserve some very nice things. You, listener, deserve the joy of giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I'm going to get it out of the way now. We deserve the nice review. You deserve the nice feeling you'll get when you give us that review and tell a friend to tune in to this show, where we always like to begin with some follow-up. So uh, quickly, we're going to rocket through some follow-up from the week's streaming news, beginning with what I promise is our final installment of Winter Olympics follow-up for this year. Uh, there's an article in Slate that, Diane, you sent to me that, that mm-hmm. uh, basically takes the other opinion to what we've been saying this whole Olympics. We've been saying nobody is watching the Olympics. And uh, this article in Slate, link in the show notes, says, you are wrong, Chris and Diane. People are watching the Olympics, just not on NBC or Peacock. They're watching them on YouTube and Twitter and social media. Uh, have, have you been watching the Olympics on online, uh, Diane? I haven't. I have been reading about the Olympics. Uh, like I read several articles about the Camila Valieva issue yes. as it came up. So I read a lot of Olympic coverage. <laughs> it's like watching the Olympics a century ago. Perhaps, yeah, you yeah, yeah. You, you get the report in the newspaper about the Olympics. Exactly. I see something occurred with that Russian skater. Right. I do use social media far more than I care to admit, and I haven't seen that much of it shared, to be honest. Uh, honestly, of same. course, that may be, you know, what, whom I choose to follow and all that, but uh, 
I don't know. Yeah, and admittedly, I'm not a huge YouTuber, but I do spend a lot of time on Twitter, and I did not watch any Olympics clips on Twitter. Uh, But I did have the experience in my day job of people talking about the figure skating scandal. None of those people, as far as I know, watched any of the figure skating. I want to be clear. I feel like they're in the same boat as us. They were intrigued by the scandal. They heard about the scandal. But they they weren't tuning into the Olympics because of it. And again, there's some numbers in the Slate article, um, impressive YouTube views for some events, but I still maintain I don't know people personally who were seeking out the Olympics to watch it. And, and I don't know what good it is for the Olympics as a brand if the thing people engaged with the most is the doping scandal. Right. And also the doping scandal made me want to tune out of the Olympics. I, I, I mean, agree. I wanted to keep reading about it, but I was repulsed by the whole thing and disappointed by the way it had been handled by NBC or the way that I read that it had been handled by <laughs> NBC, um, <laughs> which is the most fair way to form an opinion. Uh, and so, yeah, it just made me even less likely to tune in. Um, I do know people who watched it who just followed some specific winter sports and they were going to watch it no matter what. Um, but a, a lot of the people I know who would normally casually watch the Olympics seemed less invested this year. One other thing that the Slate article I feel like didn't really fully address is, I mean, if NBC and Peacock aren't making any money off people watching the Olympics, I'm not sure they care that we watch them some other way. That was my other takeaway from that article is maybe that's nice for the Olympics that people watched it on YouTube, but that's not nice for Comcast and NBC because they've paid so much money to carry the Olympics and they are stuck with it for several more Olympiads. Uh, And of course, that means after the Olympics ended, NBC released a statement saying they were a wild success. No, no real numbers in that statement. They, they didn't brag a lot about how many people tuned in. They just said, oh, the Olympics, they were great and only on NBC. Well, they have this contract till 2032, I think. So oh they've got some more chances to get it right. And I'm guessing that there are meetings that we won't be <laughs> privy to uh, about how they can get people to tune in more next next time and not on YouTube or on Facebook, but on Peacock. The answer is they just need to take several billion dollars from the Peacock war chest and, like, buy YouTube or Twitter. They could buy Twitter. They, a year from now, we'll be talking about how Comcast bought Twitter in order to solve their uh, Olympics streaming woes. That's my awful prediction for the horrible dystopia we'll be living in a year from now. Listen, if we make it to 2032 and the 2032 Olympics, I, I, honestly... Uh, I'll just be happy we made it. I'll go curl myself. <laughs> yeah, I will join them. I Listen, if the, the Russian Olympic Committee is no longer allowed to participate in 2032, I will happily take their place in any event except the cross-country skiing event where that guy's penis no. froze. <laughs> because that is the only other piece of Olympic trivia I gathered from this Winter Olympics. And again, I did not watch the cross-country skiing event. I did not even really read the whole article. I got to his penis froze, and I thought, Oh, that's enough. Oh, I did read the article about this because that did capture my attention, I must say. And what really uh, amazed me about that that Finnish skier was not that 
this have happened, but this has happened to him before. And he continues the sport. That's really for the love of the game level. I mean, truly in, in a game where I don't understand why people love it. Uh, but, you know, in America, we love football, and it really does bad things to your brain. So I guess to each their own. It's a beautiful multicultural event, the Olympics. We learn from other nations. Maybe he used to play football. And that's why <laughs> he like. oh, boy, that's deep. And we don't have time to go that deep into the Olympics because we've already talked about it more than anyone has actually watched it. Which means it's time for our next piece of follow-up, which is a show near and dear to my heart, as we already know. Abbott Elementary, the the literal appointment television of my week. Uh, Abbott Elementary, uh, we already talked about how their ratings are doing very well, especially in the streaming Mm. ratings where they kind of add up uh, the uh, premiere and then the next 35 days in in terms of viewership. And the second episode of Abbott Elementary has now surpassed the series finale of Modern Family in viewership, which is a huge win for ABC. It is their most watched comedy since the series finale of Modern Family. And obviously the series finale of Modern Family was off of the peak of Modern Family, so it's not saying that uh, Abbott has already surpassed the peak of Modern Family, but this is, I think, a great sign for Abbott Elementary, which is, again, a fantastic show. It is. It's so charming. And also for a show to be getting those kind of numbers in a first season is really exciting. Uh, Yeah. I think showing a lot of room for growth, too. I can only hope Abbott gets even better, but that is a high bar to set. So I will be happy if it just continues apace. Did you happen to see this week's episode? No, I'm behind. Then I, I no spoilers. I will just say new shades of Ava Coleman. Principal Ava Coleman, new shades of Principal Ava Coleman. And if you have not already listened to our episode about Abbott Elementary, you should go back a couple episodes, listen to our episode about Abbott Elementary, and you will understand why we are just breathless at the idea of Ava Coleman. That's the sound. Uh, But we have more uh, interesting streaming follow-up. Again, moving quickly here because we have to get to the big event. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep teasing it with the sound effect until you're sick of it. Uh, Netflix uh, is losing the Marvel series that originally premiered on Netflix. This uh, collection of shows is referred to as The Defenders, which includes Jessica Jones, uh, Daredevil, a few other series. And, and everyone expects them to wind up on Disney Plus at some point. And now we have confirmation that they are going to wind up in Disney Plus in Canada, at the very least. No confirmation about America or other regions, but a press release from Disney Plus in Canada says in the middle of March, those shows will premiere on Disney Plus in Canada. And I think one of the questions in the U.S. is whether Disney might make a play to put them on Hulu. Uh, That Mm. seems a little counterintuitive to me, but the very cynical side of me thinks that's a great way to get people to buy the Disney bundle if they don't already pay for the Disney bundle. Sure. I mean, if you think about Hulu being the slightly more adult portion Mm -hmm. of the Disney branding, it makes sense that those shows would end up there, though they're not that much edgier than the rest of the work in the Marvel canon. That's kind of how I feel, too, is at this point, the Marvel shows have gotten pretty adult. And while Mm -hmm. the, the Defender series are a bit grittier and darker, at this point, that's that's not shocking. I feel like that would be a natural evolution of uh, the Marvel brand on Disney Plus. Right. So I wouldn't be surprised if they ended up on Disney Plus, maybe with a disclaimer or something, you know, saying 
Yeah. Right. I, I think if they do wind up on Hulu, it will say a lot about Disney's intention to make Hulu uh, an add-on to Disney Plus that they're really going to try to push to combine those subscriptions for people. Uh, and and if it's a capitalist society, if they do that, it's because they want the money. And if they just put it on Disney Plus, it means they're really trying to retain Disney Plus subscribers and avoid churn. Uh, and both things could be true. We'll have to wait and find out. We'll update you when we know more. Uh, but there is one more exciting piece of follow-up that we have to talk about. The rebrand of Paramount, formerly Viacom CBS, home of Paramount Plus. Now, Paramount, home of Paramount Plus, is a little more sensical. I'll give it to them. It makes a little more sense. Uh, they announced their rebrand in a splashy Investor Day event, uh, where they also announced a whole bunch of new Paramount projects that we talked about last week. Uh, and naturally, this new streamlined, streaming-focused Paramount uh, was very badly received by Wall Street and investors, and Paramount stock dropped about 20%. So that's Ooh. the news about Paramount. They are all in on streaming, and everyone hates it for some reason. I mean, until these streaming platforms can prove that they are making some money, I think we're gonna ex we can expect more volatility. I think that's very true, and a perfect segue to our first new news story. So, without further ado, it's time for the news. And this week in the news, we're gonna begin with comments from David Zaslav. Uh, I'm a, a big David Zaslav fan. I did not really know who he was until Discovery uh, decided to buy Warner Media. David Zaslav is the CEO of Discovery. Uh, but then I read all about David Zaslav and decided that my dream is to bump into him on the Upper West Side in New York, where he likes to hang out and eat fish at old-timey New York restaurants, which uh, is really the most Upper West Side thing a person could do. I believe in you. I think you can make this, this dream come this true. This can happen. David, I'm going to find you, but not in a creepy way. I promise. It'll just be serendipitous. Uh, but David Zaslav is preparing to become the CEO of Discovery Warner, whatever they decide to call the merged company, which means he will also be in charge of HBO Max, of the entire Warner universe, DC, the, the sprawling, bizarre, Byzantine brands of Warner, CNN. I mean, this man, he's going to be in charge of so many things and currently is already in charge of everything Discovery owns, which includes like HGTV, the entire House Hunters cinematic universe, which is honestly my personal cinematic universe of choice. Uh, so the, a lot of questions are how is he going to handle the combination of them? And also, how is he going to try to elevate them to a a top-tier streamer, which feels mm. bizarre to say because HBO Max is already a top-tier streamer, but somehow, because it's now going to be Discovery's brand, people think, whoa, you have to up the ante, right? What's it going to be? And so in a, an investor call, David Zaslav really pointedly said, we are not going to try to outspend the other streamers. And I have a quote here from this Variety article that I thought was really, really uh, catty in a wonderful way that I, again, really want to meet this man just so I can understand him. Uh, he said, we're going to spend more on content, but you're not going to see us come in and go, all right, we're going to spend $5 billion more. And who is spending about $5 billion on content? Well, that'd be Comcast and Peacock. And I really mm. think that that was just shots fired at Peacock. I mean... Perhaps well played. I 
if you're watching too, it seems like for these media companies that already have a lot of content to be doing these huge buys on new content does seem a little bit like they're shooting themselves in the foot or like they're taking a gamble that they don't need to be. I, I think um, that's a great way to put it. You have a giant library of content. Already the biggest problem is getting people to navigate that library and find the content they want see the HBO Max app, which has historically through its, you know, now like two-year run, been full of complaints and confusion in just finding the stuff you want to watch on a, on a streaming service that has an amazing library of content. And now you're potentially going to integrate it with another giant streaming library from Discovery. The, the bigger challenge isn't, oh, what new thing will you watch? It's how can we help you find all of the existing stuff that we already own and make money off of if you watch it? Right. So that means they're going to need to make part of that investment that they do make into the tech of the interface itself. Ooh, that is wishful tech. thinking. As soon as you said those words, I was like, I have just set myself up for huge disappointment. But but from the investor side, which I think is, you know, David Zaslav was speaking to investors there, and I think he's very... Uh, a, acutely aware of the fact that investors do not want to see these companies just burn cash forever. That has been the MO for several years. It's how Netflix got to its dominant position. We've already talked about how it's Peacock's game plan for the next like two years is just to light a ton of money on fire and hope that we really love season two of Rutherford Falls or something like that. Uh, and no hate to Rutherford Falls. I love it. I just, at what point does your strategy pivot to making the money instead of spending the money. And he's, I think, aware of that, I would imagine. He's a smart, very successful businessman. And what he's trying to tell people is, we are already looking ahead to how can we capitalize on this giant pool of content. The whole reason to buy uh, Warner is to have this combined library that crosses across a really wide spectrum of viewers. Again, we have HBO, we have the uh, DC shows, we have CNN, we have HGTV. That's a really giant cross-section. And if you combine that all in some kind of bundle or some combo bundles where maybe you pick and choose what pieces you want, you're basically going to ensure that everyone who wants some kind of streaming plan probably wants your service for at least something. So this is going to be another major app that I'm going to be using every week who knows the the big question mark there is will it be one service or is he gonna right. keep them separate and find a way to to do what disney has been doing pretty successfully with disney plus hulu and hb uh, espn plus which is the disney bundle and and i do mm -hmm. think there is something to that bundle mentality paramount is doing a similar thing with showtime if you have paramount plus showtime is like three bucks more a month whereas if you're just buying showtime on your cable package it's like 15 so I do think the direction a lot of these conglomerate services are going is maybe it's not one app, maybe it's two or three apps, but maybe they talk to each other so they know that you have access to the content in the other apps. And that way, maybe if you search for something in HBO Max, but it's actually on Discovery Plus, it, it shows you the result so you can go there and watch it. Because one of the biggest problems right now with like Disney Plus and Hulu, if they put the uh, Marvel shows from the Defenders on Hulu instead of Disney Plus, you would not see them under the Marvel tile in the Disney Plus app. 
And that would be a big miss because the whole point is, again, discoverability. There's already too much content, too hard to navigate. The last thing you want to do is make it even more confusing. Although knowing how most companies have approached their streaming apps, probably the first thing they'll do is make it more confusing and then spend several years uh, trying to undo their mistakes. Just a guess. That seems likely. I should say, while I support the idea of there uh, being more focus on tech and less on, um, you know, new content, if any of these platforms want to pay me to make new content. Oh, absolutely. I would like some of the money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, before you just decide that the, you have all the content you need, let me be the first to tell you, you do not have all the content you need, and I can provide that content for you. But again, that's why I need to bump into David Zaslav on the street one day. That's the plan. It's a great, it's a great goal. Thank you so much. It's good to have goals. And speaking of goals, Peacock has some new goals. Love talking about Peacock here. And one of them is True Crime Tuesdays. You sent me this link, and I immediately thought this is the most Peacock thing that I have ever heard of. It's really, you know, on the cutting edge of five years ago's trends. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know who has true crime already, like, cornered? Discovery. Because they have, like, Oxygen right. and all of these networks that run shows like Snapped. And listen, I have enjoyed many episodes of Snapped. And if you're not familiar with Snapped, here's the logline. It's a true crime show about women who snap. That's it. They snapped. That's snapped. You must have seen the newest Law & Order. Oh, we're going to get there. (laughs) Uh, But I do think what's interesting about Peacock's True Crime Tuesdays is they're branding it around a day of the week, and in particular, a day of the week that is not really a a streaming drop day right now. We have uh, some streaming shows like uh, the Star Wars ones tend to drop on Wednesdays and the Marvel ones on Disney, and a lot of streaming shows drop on Fridays and Sundays. The HBO shows drop on Sundays, uh, but it's it's mostly centered around Wednesday, Friday, Sunday for streaming drops, and Tuesday is a great night of the week for some filler content like True Crime Tuesdays. It does seem like there's a big move then for weekly content instead of these Netflix-style whole, you know, dumping a whole season at once. And I get why that makes sense financially, but it breaks my heart a little because I do love a binge. I love a binge, but when I get addicted to a show, I do like looking forward to the next episode week to week. Uh, You know, if they dropped all of Abbott Elementary in one binge, I would have finished it by now. But I am really Mm -hmm. enjoying that next week there's another Abbott Elementary for me. Uh, And both both sides have their advantages. I think from the streamer's perspective... A lot of them are realizing week to week keeps us in the conversation longer, which gives you more opportunities to build natural buzz. Uh, You know, what we would used to call a water cooler moment now is more of like a Twitter obsession or people getting excited about it on, uh, you know, whatever other social media is left in the the hellscape we live in. But uh, that is the advantage to the weekly drop. And I think more of the streamers are realizing that. That's true. I do think there's a way to stay in the conversation just by producing content that's really good. Even if you do, you know, dump it all at once. If you think of a show like, okay, this is not necessarily really good, but Tiger King or Squid Game, you know, those were like, you know, whole whole drops and and they did stay in the really conversation captured. really long. Although yeah. did did season 2 of Tiger King really light the world aflame? No. I'm sorry to say no. <laughs> 
Uh, it's interesting you talk about the weekly release schedule in Netflix, though. One of our other news items that I'll jump ahead to is news about season four of Stranger Things, which is going to be the penultimate season. That means the second to last season. They're going to wrap it up with season five. Uh, but what Netflix just announced is they're going to release Stranger Things season four in two chunks. And those two chunks are going to be about two months apart from each other which is not a weekly release schedule, but it is a split binge. It is a drawn-out binge. It is a binge that will force you not to cancel Netflix for two months, which is definitely part of the plan there. But I, I'm also Absolutely. interested, will it draw the conversation out longer? Will people, will it sustain the natural buzz? Because I'll tell you, like season three of Stranger Things, I, people stopped talking about that almost immediately. Even if they liked it, it it didn't. It was a sugar rush, you know. Right, absolutely. I think that is an issue, and you can totally see the strategy behind the the two month gap specifically. It feels very crafty, okay. uh, just long enough that you've forgotten you're paying for this. We'll see. I mean, we'll see how that affects the consumption of the art. I don't know. I mean, if it's a really good first half of the season, maybe people will come back. Right, and if it feels natural in the the course of the season. If it ends in an interesting kind of mid-season cliffhanger, that's not that different than what a lot of network shows do, which is maybe 6 to 12 episodes in the fall, and then a big gap through the holidays, and then they return after the Olympics. Hell, we just watched Law & Order. Uh, Law & Order, the original Law & Order that we're about to talk about, is returning after a 12-year hiatus, but the rest of the laws and orders... SVU and organized crime are returning after about a three-month mid-season gap. And that is super common, even without the Olympics, uh, for network shows these days. And uh, they're saying they're going to do the same thing with season two of NBC's La Brea. I have not personally indulged in La Brea, but La Brea is a hit on NBC, for whatever that means now. And uh, they're bringing season two in. They're upping the season order from, I think, 10 to 14 episodes. Don't don't quote me on those numbers exactly, but that's roughly the, the shift. Uh, and season one was basically a, a, a chunk. And season two, they've already said, is going to be two chunks. And that works well for network. It keeps people coming back after a, a little break, especially if they're a fan of the show. And in the case of Stranger Things, who's tuning into Stranger Things season four? Fans of Stranger Things. So right. I, I see the strategy. It's actually not that revolutionary in some ways. Uh, but I'm curious how Netflix will fare with it. And if, if it's a success, will they try it with more shows? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to tune in and watch at least at least the beginning of it. Yeah, I, I'm going to watch it. I, I, I find Stranger Things kind of diminishing returns season to season. But I enjoy what they're trying to do. And I enjoy the vibe and the actors a whole lot. And so, yeah, I, I'm going to watch that. It's a great popcorn show. Yeah, and I'd like to see how they wrap it all up. Yeah, and, and honestly, knowing that season five is going to be the end encourages me to watch season four. If I thought that they were aiming for, you know, eight seasons of this, I would be yeah. less invested. That's true. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, at that point, the kids would be like 25, and that's not the same show. They need to, <laughs> they need to move on with their lives by then. And so do we. We truly do. Uh, but before we move on with our lives, two more quick pieces of news. One more from Netflix. Uh, they've announced that Inventing Anna, their show about Anna Delvey, the famous New York grifter, uh, that is their most watched English language original. 
and that is uh, that's a clever way of saying Squid Game was still way more popular, but right. this is uh, in terms of hours watched surpassing like all their other English language content uh, recently. And and admittedly, this is a metric that they have not been using for very long. They previously used this absolutely insane metric where if anyone watched two minutes of a show they just said you watched the whole thing which is absolutely crazy logic that is the logic of somebody who is trying to trick you into thinking that something is a hit but they've moved to this new uh number of total hours watched metric and uh, i've not gotten very far into inventing anna but what i will say is the episodes are long And part of my fear of this particular metric is it encourages really long, meandering episodes, which are not my favorite thing. Certainly not my cup of tea either. I've also heard some folks comment on Inventing Anna, and I haven't seen it. So this is, you know, secondhand other people's opinions. But and compare it to and just like that, the Second City re- or the Sex in the City <laughs> reboot, um, in saying that they're like, oh, this is such trash. I hate this. I'm watching more. You know, <laughs> like that's so, a perfectly um, legitimate genre of television. I will say, trash that I want to see more of. We're, we're about to maybe talk about some shows like that, and uh, that's fine. Uh, I need to get further into it to have a more nuanced opinion beyond, wow, the episodes feel long. But I will say, Mm -hmm. wow, the episodes feel long. And I wish we were encouraging shorter, pithier television sometimes. Wholeheartedly agree to that. Speaking of shorter and pithier television, our last piece of new news is about two of my favorite cartoons, uh, Rick and Morty. And Solar Opposites. If you're not familiar with Solar Opposites, it's basically what if Rick and Morty was about aliens and was on Hulu. And that's Solar Opposites. It's it's good. I actually really like it. Uh, but both of those are from the same animation team. And both of those, those teams have decided to unionize. Uh, naturally, uh, Adult Swim and Hulu are declining to recognize those unions. So more to come on whether they actually get to be unions, but it is really encouraging to see animation workers who are often overlooked in the uh, organized labor side and and even just the pay scale side of television Mm -hmm. uh, coming together and trying to actually make a better work deal for themselves. Yeah, it's definitely a a story that I'm going to be following as more develops. I know that uh, they did specifically mention, too, that some of the folks um, who were uh, interested in in unionizing there were um, some assistant level writers, too, uh, which is exciting because that's another group that sometimes has gotten uh, overlooked in these negotiations. So really exciting. We will, dear listener, update you as we learn more about that. And in the meantime, I, I recommend both of those shows. If somehow you don't know what Rick and Morty is, uh, that I, if you don't know what it is, maybe I don't recommend it to you. But either way, I would check them out. Are you a fan of either of them? So I appreciate Rick and Morty, even though I can say it's not my thing. Like, I, I can see that... Uh, the talent involved i have a little trouble with some of the noises on the show like just from a purely aesthetic experience um uh i have not seen solar opposites but I, but i'll check it out i am gonna leave it there but i'm very interested in which noises in particular uh trouble you but <laughs> we don't have time for that because we have another noise i need to play right now and i, th- I think you know what noise this is 
That's right. We're here to talk about Law and Order. Not any of the spinoffs, so it just ends the Law and Order, period. No colon words, just Law and Order. Uh, Diane, are you a fan of Law and Order? I really am. I am. I uh, I appreciate the OG. And I was very excited to hear that it was coming back and to see that some of the returning characters. Yeah, so if you're not deep into the Dick Wolf universe, Dick Wolf being, of course, the creator of Law and Order, uh, we're going to catch you up here. Law and Order, the original series, is a true classic of network procedural drama. Uh, Law and Order originally premiered on NBC in 1990 and ran for 20 seasons until 2010. Uh, when it was canceled, seemingly, you can you can look up the series finale of Law and Order, and it was one season shy of Gunsmoke's record for longest running primetime TV drama. They were really, really, really close. <laughs> Uh, now they're back. In the meantime, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, which was uh, the first spinoff of Law and Order, has well surpassed uh, that that run from Law and Order. Law and Order Special Victims Unit premiered in 1999, which puts it in season 24. I want to say it's a really high number. My brain can't do it. But in the meantime, Law and Order has had a, a, a an interesting history of revolving door of many, many, many uh, famous actors, especially in guest roles, but also kind of iconic uh, network TV actors, uh, in particular Jerry Orbach, who was a mainstay of that show for uh, over a decade. And uh, Benjamin Bratt got his start there as uh, Jerry Orbach's partner. Chris Noth, Mm -hmm. now of a complicated fame, uh, he started on Law and Order as one of the original characters in the very first season of Law and Order. And then we have some of the later returning characters, including Sam Waterston, who now is kind of the iconic visage of Law and Order, and he's back in season 21. Uh, and even Anthony Anderson, who a lot of people know from Blackish, uh, but was on Law and Order in the later seasons and has returned for the, the revival. It's not a reboot, it's a revival of Law and Order. And uh, th- that's just a, oh my gosh, that's the most abridged history of Law and Order I think anyone has ever had. Did I miss anything in the 21 years of Law and Order? I mean, there are so many, uh, you know, we could go all night long about the sort of iconic character actors and, um, you know, so many theater actors. I mean, you know, as someone who works in theater, every time you go to a show, you look at the playbill and see who was in which Law and Order. Um, And often they were in multiple Law and Orders because that is allowed. (laughs) Right, (laughs) that is allowed. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's part of what people come back to about Dick Wolf is the way that he, you know, has characters from different properties uh, interacting with them. Um, And that definitely seems to be something that he was leaning into with, with the revival. Very much so. Uh, We are going to talk about the revival, specifically the episode that just aired this week. Uh, But first, we are going to run through some iconic episodes 
from the 20-year run of the original series. So I guess this is a spoiler alert for 20 seasons of Law & Order. We're going to spoil all 20 seasons in about 15 minutes. Uh, so just brace yourself for that. All the twists, all the surprise endings in the last 60 seconds of the episode will all be ruined. Uh, but the great thing about Law & Order is there are so many episodes, even when you've already seen one, by the time you get around to seeing it again, you've forgotten what those twists are, and they are just as exciting. Uh, until you realize you've already seen the episode and then you go, ah, you got me again, Law & Order. You really are. Yeah, I, well, truly, it is one of my favorite background programs. This is the kind of show that I grew up with in syndication, uh, even when mm -hmm. it was still running new episodes and would be the kind of thing that you put on uh, back to back to back sometimes and you just eat them like popcorn. The, the fact that the structure um, is so reliable every time too is just uh, you know you can go down to the minute of what plot point is going to break and uh it's it's really um reassuring to me yeah there's something really comforting about that and that is what makes it such an evergreen show uh it, it does rip from the headlines that is their favorite thing to say but the structure is always like clockwork precision obviously with some variation and the occasional twist that keeps you on your toes but in general the first half of the episode is the cops investigating the crime and the second half of the episode is the prosecutors prosecuting the offenders and it follows that structure perfectly to a way where you feel like you can drop in at any moment in an episode and even if you've missed the first 20 minutes you can pick up and ride through the rest which again is what makes it great like uh, syndication tv uh, if there was just an all law and order network which is sort of a feature on peacock honestly uh you, i would just drop into it any time i would too uh, before Peacock, we if you're listening. Peacock, Peacock, come on. <laughs> Listen, and, and it's worth saying, it's kind of hard to stream some of the really old seasons. Peacock does not have season one, for example. You can't go that far back on the streaming services. Uh, and some of that might be because there's still syndication deals with some cable networks that get to air the really old stuff. Uh, but if you can find a way to invent a magical universe where you're dropped back into 1993 and watching an episode about some kind of murder due to jealous lovers, I'm going to say it's going to be great. It's going to be really great. And you're going to have all these moments where you go, why don't they have cell phones? Oh, right. What, what is that box? Oh, it's a phone booth. Why are they smoking indoors? Oh, yeah. And for me, those are the best of the of the series. Though that those first twelve seasons, which you can buy on Amazon Prime Video if you want to, which is such a specific um, thing. You can buy them for like two dollars an episode, which sounds reasonable until you realize that each of those twelve seasons had over twenty episodes, and then you're you're in a deep, deep hole. Just keep watching your favorite one. Just pick a few that you really like and play them over and over again. It's good. It's good. Uh, but in that, that journey, I agree, some of the, the best episodes are, you know, I'm a connoisseur, clearly, are from the earlier seasons. And then the show begins to morph a little bit more into something trying to be a little edgier and more topical. And I do think that eventually led to it leaving the, the universe for a while, leaving the streaming verse for a while. Uh, because in 2010, they canceled it. Uh, they decided that they only needed one Law & Order for a while, and that was Law & Order SVU, and Law & Order SVU carried the torch while Dick Wolf went off and created a whole new franchise called Chicago on another night of NBC. 
Uh, and so if you're not familiar with the Chicago shows, you should know they exist in the same universe as Law & Order and occasionally have crossover episodes that are designed to get you to watch the other shows uh, with various levels of success. I never became a big Chicago stan, uh, but I do appreciate his commitment to genre and structure, uh, which really shows through and shows through in The Return of Law and Order because the whole point of bringing the original back is it's the one with that two-part structure with the, the cops and the prosecutors. And while all the other Law and Order spinoffs over the years have had characters who are cops and characters who are prosecutors, none of them have that 50-50 split in the structure of the episode the same way. And uh, spoiler alert for the conversation we're going to have about this this particular revival episode, I think they're really leaning into, hey, didn't you miss the prosecutors? Because most of the other Law & Order spinoffs have been really cop-heavy. They did experiment with a trial-heavy spinoff called Law & Order Trial by Jury. That was a dud. Not every Dick Wolf venture is successful. Uh, they also Dick Wolf had a failed Chicago show called Chicago Justice. And I think for a while, maybe Dick Wolf took away the idea that people weren't interested in the courtroom side as much. And so they, they retired the courtroom angle and focused really heavily on the cops. And, and SVU in particular is really cop-focused. And the other current Law & Order franchise is Law & Order Organized Crime, which is itself a spinoff of Law & Order SVU because now we've entered spinoff of spinoff territory. And it's also super cop-focused. There's almost zero prosecutors as characters or as points of, of uh, plot in organized crime. Uh, but I, I think what they're trying to feel out here is, are people really interested in the courtroom side again? And honestly, the courtroom side is some of my favorite parts of Law & Order. Oh, by a long shot. And I think it gets it gets the better writing. Yeah. It's not even really particularly close, I don't think. I think that the, the characters get more nuance. Um, sometimes I feel that the, the cop characters on Law & Order uh he's writing them like they're not very intelligent and it it just makes for less interesting viewing in my opinion at least like there's still fun twists and stuff but really you know the like thornier issues and more sophisticated conversations are happening in the second half of the episodes yeah i've always felt like the the courtroom side is where law and order kind of becomes a morality play Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that I've always said, one of my favorite kind of procedural shows of the 90s is Star Trek The Next Generation. And that is a show that I would describe as a morality play set in space. Every episode is a little adventure with ethical issues and interesting questions. And they're just wrestling with the morality of humanity and whatever that means in alien cultures. And... Uh, the order side of law and order where we're in the courtroom is where they wrestle with the questions of what is right what is legal and what is something wrong because it is illegal or is something inherently right because it is legal uh, that is the most interesting stuff in the show and to get there you have to have a crime so the two parts work together and in, in the show's best seasons they both feel strong but it is what, what defines original law and order to me is that courtroom side where we get to have the thornier questions and the the uh, more ambiguous conversations to me, too, one of the things that I always liked more about Law and Order than some other cop procedurals, there are a couple other cop procedurals I like. I've always liked uh, Homicide Life on the Street. Um, but for, for the most part, I'm not, this is not my favorite genre 
or on the television, I will say. But I always thought that Law and Order, there was more of a focus on the cases. Like the case of the week really was what the episode was about and less of a focus on the lives of the characters. Like you would get some detail about Jack McCoy's life, who is, you know, the... um, now district attorney, uh, formerly the assistant district attorney. Um, But, you know, really it was mostly about that case and you would get some character stuff in how they handled the case. Um, But when he moved toward SVU, um, those cases, it seemed much more that you're following the drama of the two main detectives and their their complicated relationships. and I'm just so much less interested in that. And I think that once that is the territory that the show is in, it becomes a lot harder for the cases to stay plausible. Like you get into over the top territory very quickly when everything suddenly has a personal stake. I was disappointed to see that that seemed to be a big part of this new episode. But what we'll see if that's something that actually they keep up, because one of the defining Mm -hmm. characteristics of original Law and Order is that the cast does change over the years and is fully expected to. Even when you fall in love with a character like Jerry Orbach, he is not going to live forever, very literally, and eventually is going to get replaced by a Dennis Farina, who, while is a different person, who I do not love as much as Jerry Orbach, I have to say brought a new energy to the show and and it did not lose its stride as a procedural and the structure held it together and and that is the the main event of the show still is that structure and the the way that the crime leads to the moral conversation and the prosecution and the prosecutors don't always win their case which is another big factor in this show. The prosecutors screw it up sometimes, or the cops screwed it up in the first half, and then the prosecutors try to, you know, uh, make the case work despite the mistakes, and then they do or they don't. And those those twists uh, are, are the twists that, you know, make it a little unpredictable and also make it kind of thorny again. I'm going to lean on that word a lot. It's a thorny show. It is. I felt like... I didn't feel that this was their thorniest. No. (laughs) No, but let's go back for a second because I do want to talk about a couple of the older episodes we watched to kind of get ourselves excited. Uh, I want to start with the the pilot that aired on NBC in the 1990s, which is not the original pilot. We will talk about that in just a moment. But the first episode that aired uh, in 1990... Uh, it throws us in right away to the structure of the show. There's not a lot of like, hey, these are cops. You're being introduced to them. It's just a case. And it opens up like most episodes do with a dead body. And in this case, it's I actually really loved this episode as the pilot because it's basically a medical malpractice case. A, a young woman dies in uh, the ER uh, from being given the wrong drug. And the whole episode winds up hinging on was the doctor, who is an extremely successful, famous surgeon, like, you know, he's the chief of medicine or something like that. Uh, and so he's unimpeachable. He Everybody does what he says. But it turns out he's a raging alcoholic who just does a really good job of hiding it. And he was drunk at the time that he gave the wrong medicine to this woman, which then... Uh, Uh, had an interaction with a drug she already took that they knew she was on and that killed her and the episode hinges entirely on is he culpable for this murder because he knew he was a drunk 
did he know he was an alcoholic? And if he did know he was an alcoholic, he is responsible for his negligence. If he didn't know he was an alcoholic, he may not be because doctors are not necessarily responsible for the mistakes they make. And obviously, right, there's some there's some like other questions to unpack there, like who's responsible for what and should they be in a hospital situation? But they, they've zeroed in on a really interesting question of guilt that made it more than just a murder. They, they treat it as a murder, obviously, because they're trying to find him guilty of this death. But the episode is a, about, you know, not what you immediately think of in a, of a police procedural. And in the yeah. course of getting there, we move through a whole bunch of really fast investigation scenes. It's like the cops, we meet them right away. They interview like 10 people in the first like act of the episode. It's just like these scenes that are like each 60 seconds long where they're interviewing a nurse, they're interviewing an orderly, they're interviewing a doctor. And uh, at the end of that, we wind up learning a whole bunch of tiny pieces of information about these these uh, detective characters who are going to be our main characters for the, the first few seasons of the show. And, and the way that they just rapid fire unfurl all that so plot is developing really quickly plot 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 and then they drop in like oh you know one of the detectives he had a, a brain injury a couple of years ago and a doctor misdiagnosed it as a, a brain tumor and he thought his life was going to be over but then another doctor said no, no actually it's just like a concussion you're you're fine and then the other detective he loves doctors because his father was saved by like a heart transplant Oh, and then their mm -hmm. lieutenant, he's a recovering alcoholic. All of those pieces just unfold in the course of the first, like, 20 minutes of the episode. And it's that's the level of character development that the show is really good at, where you're like, oh, that gives me, like, a frame of reference for this character, but it's related to the case, and it, it doesn't make them the center of attention. It's just details about their lives that pop up during the course of the investigation. And it's just efficient storytelling. Yeah. Which I so appreciate. Uh, that is that is the original pilot as far as people knew if they were just watching the show when it premiered on 1990. But that is not the actual pilot episode that was originally produced and pitched to the networks. Because as you, Diane, uh, learned, the original pilot was produced in 1988 for CBS. Yes. So um, and then so CBS uh, produced the pilot and then passed on it. And then NBC ended up picking it up and airing it in 90. But I think that that, that episode that was technically the pilot didn't, it was like the fourth or fifth episode Yeah, it was like air. five or six. Because I, I went back and I, I watched mm -hmm. that as well. And what's interesting about that episode to me is it feels different. It doesn't feel fully baked in terms of the formula. And it also does look like it was shot two years prior to the other episodes from 1990. Like everyone. They have different haircuts. Their hair is different and looks distinctively a little more 80s. They all look younger and a little skinnier in some cases. It, it is, it just sticks out. One of the, the, uh, the DA, who's the, uh, the boss of the ADAs, so he's not in uh, as many scenes, but he is the boss of the prosecutors. It's a different guy in that episode. And that is like not commented on at all. And in that episode, the two ADA characters who have already been in the first like four or five episodes, they act as if they just started working together. Like they introduce one of them as if he's new. And it, it was it, it was such a 
funny moment of, yeah, in the 1990s, you had to fill like a 24-episode season or something. And so if there was a usable episode that was already shot, you are going to air it, even if you're like, boy, this one isn't that good. You're just going to slip it in like four or five weeks into the run, you know, maybe on a week where it was up against some other popular show and they figured, yeah, you know what? We're not going to have high numbers this week anyway, but we got to put an episode out. Well, I think also, though, if you're expecting people to watch week to week, you don't expect the same sort of attention to detail. And those kind of continuity errors were just way more common across seasons of television. Correct. And there was no easy way to go back and catch up. So if you were new to the show, you know what? It didn't make a difference. Right. And you could be like, oh, who was that? And it's not like at the time, too, people would just be like, well, let me check IMDb. Right. (laughs) You know, wasn't that a different guy? (laughs) Yeah, boy, this episode looks different. Did he look like that last week? Go back. Go back in the the app and show me what he looked like last week. Maybe that was better. (laughs) Maybe. Uh, That episode also noteworthy because the order side of the episode, there's like no courtroom scene. The entire order side is like planting a wire on an informant. Uh, mm-hmm. and having him go to a corrupt dinner with some corrupt politicians. And then the informant gets shot and killed. And we just cut to a courtroom where uh, Michael Moriarty, who plays Ben Stone, the original kind of Jack McCoy character, is just like, in this course of this trial, I will prove these men guilty. And then some text comes up on the screen that says, after six weeks of deliberation, they were found guilty. It is now an appeal. And you're like, that's not how this show works. You're supposed to see the courtroom drama. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, that's true. That one was definitely less about the actual events in court. Though I did think, you know, a lot of that structure that we still saw on tonight's episode was set up from that first pilot in 88. I mean, they you there's a body in the, in the cold open, you know, um, 20 minutes of... Uh, cop stuff and then another you know 20 minutes of order even if it wasn't exactly what it looks like like they've been working that structure for decades and that is impressive it is and uh they continued it uh through many years and many seasons i jumped ahead to season five which originally aired in 1995 and watched the Mm -hmm. first episode with jack mccoy played by the iconic sam waterston love him truly Love him. And in that episode, he's taking over as the ADA. That episode is also a great example of how they began to lean into the more ripped from the headlines social issue of the day. And it's sometimes a really transparent uh, story that they're ripping from. We're going to talk about this week's new episode, and it's pretty transparent what story they're ripping from. Uh, But Mm. this one was interesting because it was about, like, alternative medicine, and in particular for women with breast cancer who didn't want to have mastectomies. And so there's a doctor who's not a medical doctor, but like a dietitian doctor who's providing herbal remedies that are supposed to help slow the cancer and let you live a more full life, but all of her patients die. Uh, And in particular, one patient dies in the cold open, because that's how the show works, and that gets the Mm -hmm. cops onto this case of, did this person get poisoned? Is the doctor providing treatments that are poison? And eventually it gets to Jack McCoy in the prosecution side, where he, he makes it about this woman is lying to her patients and the crime is lying about a cure 
and he has to prove that she is claiming she can cure their cancer, which is a lie. And and they uh, very transparently unpack these questions of, well, isn't someone's medical treatment their own private choice? And that's an interesting question, let alone when you frame it about a woman's choice to her own private medical treatment. This was 1995, so they absolutely did not touch abortion as an issue. But the you know the parallels are pretty obvious. And Jack McCoy frames it very much as it's not about your right to choose your treatment. You have that right. It's about the person providing the treatment being honest and forthright to the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, that you can't tell someone you're going to cure them and then provide them, you know, um, a bunch of apricot seeds. Honestly, that sounds like it would be fairly typical right now. Yeah, it, honestly, what, what, what I took away from that episode was it felt pretty both typical of, of law and order in the later years where it was very on the nose in terms of we're addressing a social issue. And some of it's a little too... Uh, a little too transparent. There's a scene with a woman who did get a mastectomy who's like, my husband hasn't touched me since. And I was like, oh, I don't love that. But at the same time, they ask these really interesting questions about, hey, who who gets to decide what's right and wrong in this situation? And what is the thing we're talking about? Is the thing we're talking about your private medical decision? Or is the thing we're talking about being fed misinformation, which does feel really topical right now? And so there is something timeless about that. The other little takeaway I had from that episode is a beginning part of the investigation where they think maybe the husband murdered his wife hinges on the fact that she had a, the cancer was a pre-existing condition that disqualified her from health insurance at her new job, which was horrifyingly topical in a way. And, and, you know, thankfully we don't have those uh, restrictions on your health coverage now, but we did for a really long time. And it was so casually handled then that it really made me sad and upset for how bad health care is in this country. And the fact that it wasn't even like, that wasn't the dramatic question of like, should she have been covered? Or, you know, is that what drove this to happen? It was just like, oh yeah, you know, she couldn't get the health insurance because they found the cancer during her screening. And that's a pre-existing condition. We don't cover those. So that's why she went broke treating her cancer. Did the husband kill her for the money? No, he didn't. Chilling. Chilling. And that is one of the things I love about the show is it also touches on societal issues kind of accidentally in, in a casual way that is reflective of how society feels at the moment about that thing. Because in the 90s, especially around 1995, after Hillary Clinton's uh, real big failed healthcare reform push in, in the first term of Bill Clinton's presidency, how did people feel about health insurance? Private health insurance is great. Nothing wrong with it. That's the Dems the breaks. I, I do think it definitely handles social issues better when it is a glancing touch. You know, yeah, I, I actually think that's a really well said way of looking at it. I would say casually, you'd say glancing touch. It's the same same feeling, same vibe of like, don't make it about the social issue, just do a drive by. So should we should we talk about the rubber room? I think that means we have to talk about the last old episode we're going to talk about. The series finale from 2010, the last episode of season 20, titled Rubber Room. And if you have a vague recollection of that phrase, it means, like us, you read about the New York Department of Education's rubber rooms around 2010 when that news was topical. And those were rooms where they would send teachers who were on some kind of disciplinary investigation who couldn't be fired but couldn't be allowed in a classroom with children. 
and they could sit there for months or years getting paid but not being allowed to do anything except sit in the rubber room. Right. And so for, I think that was one of those things that people who hated unions at the time seized on yeah. about this like frustration with the idea that people are being paid to do nothing. And then at the same time in, in the episode, it's actually, you know, these teachers who are being stuck in the rubber room um, becoming so angry that they turn to murder. Turn to murder. That's correct. And and that episode is is a great example of like really late original Law and Order because it is about at first they think it's about kids murdering and they think that some kids maybe planted a pipe bomb. Then they realize it's not the kids, it's the teachers. And then it kind of becomes a domestic terrorism investigation for a minute. And they're talking to like the New York City Terrorism Department because they love to loop in that that exists now. And then it turns out it's this guy who uh, got put in a rubber room because of an altercation with one of his students where he got accused of molesting the student, but as far as we understand, he did not. However, being in the rubber room brought out the worst in him and ruined his life and career, and so he decided the way to fix that was to plant a bunch of pipe bombs in a school and shoot it up, which they then stop in a dramatic takedown uh, in an episode that had very little of the courtroom drama aspect uh, and a whole lot of action sequences. Yes, yes, a whole lot of action sequences and um, so many social issues jammed in there. Yeah, all I over mean, the place. I mean, you know, all over the place. Um, it starts off with a young woman who uh, has sent like nudes to an older man who, that are put on the <laughs> there web. There was a blog. There was a blog at the beginning, and the parents are looking at the blog and they're talking about how once you put it on the blog, it's out there. It's just. I, Nothing is more quickly dated than references to the internet. You know, like every time a character was like, oh no, and now it's all over the net. <laughs> I was like, are we sure this was 2010 and not 97? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and later in the episode, they determine that the uh, scary blog they've found with all of this uh, imagery of guns and, and pipe bombs is actually just a guy reposting the JPEGs. They, they basically presaged NFTs just being JPEGs anyone can repost. And they said, oh, no, it's actually from a scarier blog, from a scarier person. And they used their cybercrime people to track this guy down. Uh, in the middle of that, in one of the few courtroom scenes, the ADA at the time is trying to get a grand jury to let them access the personal like computer data of 2,000 students at a high school because they still think that there's a student who's planning to do this. They haven't figured out it was a former teacher yet. And so there's a scene where these members of a grand jury are saying, you want us to give up access to the privacy of like 2,600 high school students because you think one of them maybe might be planning something? And the ADA says, yes. And if that that person is successful, that's twenty six hundred students who might die. It just the the level of hysteria on every possible social issue of the moment. It it's it's uh it's numbing. It's so over the top. I it I mean it felt like a, a show that was ready to be canceled. It and did. I would say that when I heard the news that it was canceled, I was very disappointed because I like watching it, but like. I mean, it, it felt like it had run its course, and yet, and <laughs> here we are. And yet, here we are, ready to talk about the episode we watched 
for this week in particular, let's talk about season 21 of Law and Order. I regret to inform you they've tweaked the theme song, and what I just played is no longer the accurate theme song, and I have to say, that already put me in a real bad mood when the episode started. Yeah, there was no need. It, it was not broken, why fix? Um, though I guess Mike Post did do the music the, for Law yeah. & Order, um, and has been doing the versions of the music, including the the dun sound. Uh, <laughs> So uh, to me, he's a hero. He is a hero. I, I fully agree. But boy, if it ain't broke, don't fix it is right. Like the, the, the iconic original theme song is admittedly dated, but that's the point. It's timeless. And you're bringing right. back the original. Why do you have to zhuzh it up and make it sound remixed? It doesn't need to be remixed. The show has already been remixed. Um, one, two, three, four, five times six times not counting the international spinoffs and i think that you know did set us up for what we could expect from this i i guess pilot's the wrong word but it this, is it's sort return. of a pilot it, it is there it felt like a pilot in some ways because they were setting up the formula again and they were setting up these new characters because only two characters return from season 20 jack mccoy who is now the uh, district attorney, which means he appears in all of, like, two and a half scenes. And in two of those scenes, I'm not sure he was in the same room as the other actors. A and then Anthony Anderson as one of the detectives in the first half. And and I, I told you as we were watching the episode, Anthony Anderson has the unfortunate role of being in some of the worst seasons of the show, and he never really had great chemistry with his other detective partner. They were I, I can't even off the top of my Jeremy head. It was Jeremy Sisto, Yes, right? it was Jeremy Sisto. I was like, I can't even tell you who it was. I'm like, right, it was Jeremy Sisto. It was Jeremy Sisto. I watched that episode yesterday. Um, but th they never had the kind of chemistry that some of the earlier pairings had, like Jerry Orbach and Benjamin Bratt or Jerry Orbach and Jesse L. Martin. Like, those people had iconic vibes. And mm -hmm. and ah, that's tough. That that's uh, Obviously, those are high bars to, you know, aspire to. Um, I hate to say that he does not get any good vibes with his new partner, that's to say the least. No. It also seemed very implausible that they were having the conversations that they were having. So his new partner is Jeffrey Donovan, I believe the actor's name is, yes. um, who folks might know from Burn Notice or Chris and I were delighted to see from Fargo season two. Which I, Incredible. I, we both love deeply, but as you pointed out, he plays a dumb guy in season two of Fargo. He plays Dodd Gerhardt, who is one of my favorite characters in that season, but it's not because he's a brilliant tactician it's because he thinks he is and he absolutely is not and it is really hard when you associate someone so deeply with a specific role not to have that impression when you look at them and he, boy it, the writing did not help him there I had a really hard time believing that this guy was so smart and there are scenes where people literally say he's so smart <laughs> I'm like who are you talking about Yes, I, I, I had a similar experience watching it, um, and probably because I've watched Fargo season two uh, several times, but also because it takes more for audiences to think that a character is smart than someone announcing that the character is smart. Uh, he's a smart I mean, one. 
Yeah, so um, he seems like he's sort of the quintessential bad cop, the the yeah. hothead a bit. He seems uh, potentially like casually racist in the in the first episode, which causes some confrontation with him and Anthony Anderson's character. Um, but it, they started getting into you know a big fight about like how police officers should be interacting with the community, and I just wanted to be like. Don't you work together every day? Like, yeah, well, they they make a point of saying like met? they've been working together for two months. I think they said, and and okay, but also you're acting like it's day two, not month two. You're acting like it's really fresh, and you've never really interacted with the public together before. I'm like, right. eh, that it's a little much. I honestly would have preferred if they'd treated it a little more like a traditional pilot, and they're like, welcome. This is your new partner. If, if anyone's watched Absolutely. Murderville on Netflix, which is a completely different tone of cop show, that's uh, the improvised cop show where a celebrity guest appears on each episode to try to guess who the killer is. Absolutely not the same tone as this show, but the setup of each episode is, here's your new partner. And honestly, I would have appreciated something as transparent as that here, because then I would have at least believed some of this conflict they were having. And instead, it just felt like the you know the attempt to do what I mentioned in the NBC pilot from 1990, where details about their character and what their character is like falls out during the course of the investigation. Like, oh, I don't trust doctors. Oh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And here it's like, oh, I don't trust these people with cameras. And I think the way that I interacted with that that person on the street was totally fine. And I'm like, well, you just shoehorned in those opinions real fast real hard and real fast and very inelegantly and then he also just like changed his, his mind opinion. on the day yeah, the- he, he like argued with anthony anderson's character for several lines of dialogue and then he was like actually i agree with you they should be filming us i was like wait what yeah. like what this doesn't make sense at least say, make it make sense, Dick. I, I took away from that, like, oh, his character type is needlessly provocative white guy who always wants to have a contrarian opinion about whatever it is you're talking about in the moment. And at, and maybe that's not what they intend for him to be, because that's kind of a dumb person, in my opinion, personally. But that is the portrait they painted for me, because I'm grasping onto, well, you're giving me these little details about these characters, and we're never going to get deep, deep backstories unless the show goes really off the rails. And uh, so I, I have to put together, like, so who is this guy? Who is this new guy who I'm meeting? I guess he's, like, your annoying college roommate who always wants to say, like, actually, the way it really is is the way I think it is. I mean, and I do believe that that person exists, and I do believe that there are instances in which that person is an NYPD officer. That's Uh, believable. But it doesn't really make for compelling television. No, and the way it unfolded, like you said, was was confusing. It just, it was, how, how long have you people known each other? And then also, why did you change your mind? Just back to back kind of confusing beats. And that also derails the the kind of momentum of the procedural. And again, why are we here? For the procedural structure. That is what we love about this show. And so anything you do that derails that is a problem. Right. And I also think that trying to so abruptly right in the first like 10 minutes of the return deal with questions of the police right now um, 
wasn't necessary. Uh, like they could handle that over the course Correct. of the season. They are going to deal with that regardless. I did not need you to deal with that instantly out of the gate. I would also point out because I I am I'm a Law and Order addict. Hello, this is the part of the character building that tumbles out of our investigation. I, I casually reveal I'm a recovering Law and Order addict, uh, and I'm <laughs> off the wagon right now. And uh, this this thing of how the police deal with the community is something they talk about on all of the law and orders all of the time now to an extent that is really over the top. And I would love it if they dialed it back a bit because it is relevant. But if you constantly make it a shoehorned plot point, it doesn't feel real and it doesn't feel relevant to the episode. And then it doesn't feel relevant overall because it's like, God, you're making a point about that again. But I don't know why you are. And I don't know really like what it has to do with this story. It loses its impact. I wonder if part of it is that I think that to continue making these shows um, for so long, they have these literal partnerships with the police and fire departments like the, the creators of these shows do. You know, they, they provide them background on so that they have information on how police investigations work, you know, like how evidence is collected, right? The people who make television shows don't necessarily know those things. They have to learn it. And I think that um, particularly with Dick Wolf, that there are those relationships with uh, the police department in different cities where he's making work. And I think that it's become like a, a weird sticking point of defending those people. Um, and then like very half-assedly trying to show the other side of it uh, in a way that is just, it denigrates the whole thing. <laughs> Just, yeah. It demeans the conversation and it's talking down to your audiences for all that they talk about it. They never talk about it with any sort of nuance. It's just that there are these really angry people on one side demanding something and these really justified people on the other side trying to do their jobs and being attacked. And it's, um, you know, it's a it's a problem that the show has that I don't know. I, I don't think that he's the guy to get him out of this. I agree. He is not the guy to get them out of this. And if you, listener, want to dig into that that aspect of the show, that social aspect more, there's a link in the show notes, an op-ed from the New York Times, of all places, talking about the identity crisis of law and order. And in that article is actually just talking about SVU and organized crime, which are very polar opposite in their attitudes towards policing in some ways, which is bizarre to me because they are deeply related spin-offs of each other that often have crossover episodes but tonally are wildly different and i think what's interesting about the the new season 21 law and order is it's kind of right in the middle of those two polar opposites in a way that is cognitive dissonance uh on screen sometimes and you know this is one episode they were trying to do a lot in this first episode and it could get smoother listen not every episode of 20 seasons of law and order is good what's good is the overall oeuvre of law and order and so i'm tuning in next week i'm excited that it's back but i do have these concerns these questions that you have i mean i'll give it a few more i love sam waterston so much and i still have to wait a couple months till grace and frankie's back so, so you gotta I, do something in the meantime so i must i must get my sam somewhere um <laughs> but i don't i i, I don't know if, if this is what we're in for i don't think that i would just rather watch you know one of the 
10 seasons the old on episodes ah. yeah I, I, I would say if this episode's indicative me too we'll give it a, some chance what, what i will say is it seems pretty obvious that they're looking to do the ripped from the headlines thing every week and very explicitly because this week's episode was cosby it was just Cosby. But what if Cosby was a musician instead of a comedian? But otherwise, this was Cosby. And what if somebody murdered Cosby after he got out of jail on a technicality? And that's this week's episode. I hated that idea from the moment it began, and yet we had to go on that ride. Yeah, I um, I don't think that they handled that issue well. Uh, no, and also it really feels like it belonged on SVU. We talked about this during the episode as well. I assumed that by bringing back the original, that would let them lean into SVU, which was originally about sex crimes, because that is what the Special Victims Unit investigates. It would let SVU be SVU more. And this, while again, not my favorite setup, like Cosby, okay, that feels at home on SVU. And SVU, being the only major uh, tentpole for Law & Order for about a decade, had to juggle a lot of different stories where not all of them had to do with sex crimes at all, and sometimes it didn't really make sense that SVU was investigating, but, like, that's the Law & Order we have. And so they just made it... They, they were like, yeah, we called an SVU because you have some expertise on this one. And so, in my mind, I'm like, why did you pick the most explicitly sex crime-adjacent story to make... The, the first episode of regular Law and Order again. The whole a lot of people hate SVU because they don't like the sex crime stories and they don't want to go near it. But they love original Law and Order because they love the police procedural and they love murder because who doesn't love murder? I I just I found it to be a baffling choice. I agree, and I would say that I'm in that camp. I'm kind of perplexed by the fact that so many people want to watch and disturbed slightly by the fact that so many people want to watch the, like, sex crime stories. And part of me wonders if, like, because I do know a lot of women who watch SVU, and obviously Mariska Hargitay is great, so that's part of it. But right. I think another thing, too, is that, you know, there's this fantasy that it presents wherein um, police try to solve rape cases. <laughs> that you know, is a fantasy. Um, mm -hmm. It is. So I think that choosing to put that as, as as the entry back really would have taken a lot of thoughtfulness and care that was not given to the writing. I they did do some good things right in terms of casting, as far as I could tell. Like Norm Lewis guest starred as the Cosby like character who's name I think was something King. Um, Norm Lewis is an extraordinary actor, kind of underutilized in this because he dies in the cold open. That's <laughs> but, how the show works. You know, for for those who know him, it's he is that very, you know, magnetic, charismatic personality. That made sense. Um, Hugh Dancy as the new assistant DA. I'm um, so glad you brought that up because as much as I felt that there was zero chemistry in the new cops, uh, mm. I loved Hugh Dancy as somebody who is shades of Jack McCoy, but Jack McCoy has always been kind of cynical in some ways. That's been his character from the get-go. In in the season five episode I watched that introduced him, the, the first piece of information we're given about him by his uh, assistant, Claire Kincaid, played by Jill Hennessy, is that he's only ever had three female assistants and he's had relationships with all of them including one of them he was married to for a while and he throws that off like well they were they were more interesting than the people i meet at the gym 
And I'm like, you are what? You're such a weird Lothario. Nobody, nobody is allowed to say that anymore. That's so weird. Why did you say that? And yet, at the same time, that is his character. And while he would not say that today for a variety of reasons, he's that kind of like, yeah, you know. But but it, it was mutual in the ends justify the means. And and what matters is the the facts and the nuts and bolts of it. Whereas Hugh Dancy is brought in as right away the guy who's like, yes, I know these are the facts and I know that she murdered this man, but is it ethical for us to use this confession? Because it seems like we got it in a kind of skeezy way and we could probably get it admitted, but should we get it admitted? And I'm like, that is the anti-Jack McCoy in some ways. I mean, the the thing that he did seem to share with Jack was that he was like intelligent and driven, um, which was refreshing after... The characters in the first half hour weren't given a lot of uh-huh. clever diet, clever <laughs> writing. They just and it, I don't fault the actors for that. That's no, that fault, was that but... was a rough first half across the board. Not a not a great investigation. Like not a great story for them to investigate. Not many great beats for them. It, you know, yeah. To, to their credit, they were working with a really tough piece of material in the first half. And then the second half, while I still don't like the story that this episode is telling, it's a more interesting question of, well, one of one of this guy's victims killed him as, as vengeance, essentially, because he got let out on a technicality. He got let out of prison on a technicality. And he we all know he raped 40 women. That is established in, in the course of the show. And so obviously vigilante justice is frowned upon in the justice system. But at the same time, you know, the question of, well, the police kind of tricked her into confessing by telling her that they would not prosecute her, which was a lie, but the kind that the police are allowed to do. And so she confessed, and then they arrested her, and and, and the question was, well, is it okay for us to use that confession? Because one, it was skeezy, and two, it'll make us look bad, and it'll make the cops look bad. And that was the one piece of the episode where I felt like they were touching on the issue of cops' relations with the people, the community, in a in a way that felt more interesting and relevant than than the ways that they did in the first half of the episode. Because I was more mm-hmm. interested in the prosecutors, uh, Hugh Dancy arguing to his boss, Jack McCoy, you know, I know we could use this, but think about how it will make the police look. It'll make them look like manipulative liars. And right now, in this climate, do we want them to look like that? And I thought that that struck me as more interesting than any of the other ways they tried to address that in the first half of the episode. That does strike me as an interesting question. It doesn't strike me as something that an assistant district attorney would say to a district attorney. No, probably not. You'd want to solve the case. I mean, and I'm sure that they are interested in, you know, what's happening in terms of like, you know, I think that Jack even referenced the like movement to defund the police. Yeah. But I, I just don't think that they're having that conversation um but you know i I, i'll give you that it it was more interesting it was handled with a little bit more nuance um like like the idea nuance question mark yeah that that to me you know as i said before i love that the law the order side rather the legal side is sometimes a morality play they ask these Mm. ethical moral questions and i thought that was an interesting one because there's the moral question of is a confession garnered through pretty blatant lying to somebody who was also a victim at one point is that something we should encourage 
whether it's legal or not. That was question one. And then question two was, well, if that guarantees that we send the criminal, the murderer, to prison, is that worth it if it makes the community trust the police less as collateral damage? And that's a kind of question that I would love it if they they interrogated a little bit more because that mm-hmm. is relevant, topical, and ambiguous. There There isn't totally a black and white answer to some of those. Sure, and I think for that too then – they just could have handled it with a different case. I just don't I, see I agree. How that, this was a right? bad like case for that. Yeah. I mean, and so they had another twist to the plot where there was involvement with another ADA um, who is a, a former um, ADA on Law and Order, um, uh, Jamie Ross, I think the character's yes, name is played she's by from, Carrie Lowell. She's post uh jill hennessy so there's claire kincaid played by jill hennessy uh when jack mccoy joins the show in season five then after claire kincaid leaves jamie ross is his next assistant and and Mm -hmm. she's also from an iconic era of that show that's like the jerry orbach benjamin bratt era of that show peak peak 90s law and order she was on some of my favorite episodes and um i think i think she you know uh sparred well with jack back in the day um so they made her her, they started doing the the svu thing that i hate where they made it about their lives instead (laughs) instead of about the case where like oh and you know uh jamie had um been the attorney who lost the case on the technicality that that got the attorney that got the um rapist off in the first place and then um so now she had met with the murderer earlier that afternoon to discuss the case like before the murder and the question Um, was because at this point in the the trial the the uh, murderer you know formerly the rape victim now the murderer is claiming self-defense she's changed her story which we know is a lie but she's trying to get off uh and she's claiming that he uh, he attacked her and she had the gun for self-protection and shot him in self-defense and they go to jamie ross and they ask jamie ross did she come and tell you that she was gonna go kill him and she's like i'm not gonna say <laughs> i don't want to answer that repeatedly pleads the fifth which it's just like this was like uh, the fifth it, i just not... felt really insulting yeah, it also it kind of felt insulting that are you allowed to plead the fifth over that? And what does that mean for her career? And it, it kind of just felt like they were throwing her out as a yeah, yeah, we got this one time guest star deal for her. And we're gonna just kind of toss it out. And it'll be dramatic when she pleads the fifth. And it was, it was not dramatic for me. It felt kind of pointless, and like a waste of a great throwback character who I have really fond memories of. Yeah, the men in the case gets to, you know, look at the thorny issues of law and ethics and the women are you know too upset about the rape crime to see anything but that it was like oh come on dick i just yeah i was really disappointed by that by that and then they didn't even put her and jack mccoy in a room together instead they had jack mccoy standing across the room clearly on a different day of shooting with no one else around (laughs) him glaring at her and that was it maybe that's the the covet of it all maybe (laughs) maybe Sam Watterson is, you know, he's getting up there and we need to keep him safe. So all of his seats He's a national treasure. It's true. And I know it took some convincing, according to the reports, to get him to come back and do the show. Uh, So perhaps there were some concessions to be made there. Could be. 
could be. Um, but I do hope that they move away from the personal uh, lives of the attorneys as anything but, you know, passing comments and more into the cases, the case. I agree. And speaking of the cases, the case, they teased next week's episode. And uh, spoiler alert, it's ripped from the headlines. It's basically Theranos, but what if someone died? That's it. There's a charismatic blonde woman with a deep voice who's got her face on the cover of a bunch of magazines and somebody died. All right, I am going to watch it. I I, got to say, like, yeah, that's the kind of rip from the headlines where I'm like, yeah, that sounds hokey. And yet I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to tune in. Yeah. It doesn't sound like it's going to be the return of the, like, great writing on Law & Order back in the day. But it does sound like it'll be fun popcorn television. Right. And and to, to be clear, I do not go back to old episodes of Law & Order because, oh, this one was an exquisite piece of writing. I go back because it's reliably entertaining and has a momentum and a structure and a pace that's very satisfying, like playing a good game of solitaire or solving a puzzle. That is what procedurals do well. And so, yeah, it doesn't need to be brilliant. It needs to be really good at what it does and, and um, you know, needs to pitch interesting ideas at me that don't need to be so complicated. They, they just need to be handled better than this one was. Yeah, I mean, I do think that I am looking for a little bit more in terms of the writing. And I think that maybe because the original did bring that for so long and it wasn't always perfect you know it it always had the ethical issues we discussed and it always had you know some hokey moments but it was it was a big step up from what we're getting right now so yeah uh, i hope i hope i I hope to and i I would say my two biggest questions uh as we go forward is are are they going to establish a better rapport or dynamic between the two cops between Anthony Anderson and Jeffrey Donovan because that was the most troubling thing to me is I didn't understand their relationship and I didn't really want to see more of them together and and they they have time to work that out Mm -hmm. again this was a rough episode for that so and also like Jeffrey Donovan's new to the series and they might be figuring out what his fit is in the ensemble so and again I love him in other things so there's there's opportunity there, but I worry about that. Whereas in the back half, Hugh Dancy and uh, Odelia Halevi, I, I honestly don't know her from anything else, but she plays the uh, other assistant. She she didn't get a lot of screen time, but she was good, and I liked her dynamic with Hugh Dancy. She was more of a Jack McCoy than he was in that kind of nuts and bolts, let's go get him, I'm a shark kind of way. And then they revealed a little bit of her inner character when she delivered the closing argument at the end. And she reveals that uh, she was related to a victim of rape and knew who the rapist was, and and that person got away with it. And that is maybe a bit exploitive uh, at the end of the episode, but... It was she handled it well, and it made for a powerful scene for her. And I liked what it revealed about her character, which wasn't too much and doesn't fundamentally change her or make the show about her. And the fact that she and Hugh Dancy kind of wrestled a little bit about her doing that—that that was all kind of classic Law and Order in a way, where they spar a bit, but they're on the same team at the end, and and they're humans, but we're not here for their humanity; we're here for them serving their role in the justice system. So th- yeah. th- that I, I see, like, oh, there's a good dynamic there. So they're not they're not missing um, the the dynamic element, but it, they're not hitting it on the first half of the show yet. 
no, I think that she took some pretty misogynistic writing and really elevated it and kind of knocked it out of the park. Well I am sad. excited to see uh, to see where she goes. I, I hope that we'll see her on other programs too. Yeah, and then the, the second thing that I'm waiting to find out, where is uh, Lieutenant Van Buren? Uh, that is the, yeah. the iconic Essie Patha Merkerson, who I once sat in front of at the public theater and spent the entire, I can't tell you what play it was anymore because, oh, actually it was a Tony Kushner play. And it's sad that what I remembered first was Essie Patha Merkerson. But at the same time, that's not sad. She's a treasure. And Tony, he's fine. Uh, but but man, she's amazing. She played the lieutenant of that uh, detective unit for over a decade. And in the season 20 finale, she is learning about a cancer diagnosis and whether or not it's spreading. And then they just leave us hanging pretty much. And is she alive or not? If she is dead, uh, the show is maybe dead to me. I don't know. You can't do that to me. My heart can't take it. She is so outstanding and really, oh God, she has such a beautiful speaking voice. I just want her in, in more things. I, she's so wonderful. Um, if, if, if something bad has happened to Anita Van Buren, there will be ripped from the headlines of me taking my revenge. <laughs> um, they did mention podcasting in this episode, so it is entirely in their wheelhouse now to do an episode about a podcaster who takes revenge on a television show for killing off their favorite character. I'm just saying, I can see this episode happening, and we might be played by off-Broadway actors in it. Great. I love to see my friends get work. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, dear friends listening to the show, want to give us the work of producing more episodes of this show, uh, send us an email with your questions or your feedback at podcast at streamageddon.com. You can also uh, message us or tweet at us on Twitter. I'm at I am Chris Barlow. Diane is at Diane Nora with two N's in Diane. And uh, you can also give us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts. Ask your questions there. If, you, if you're giving us a review, you can ask us anything, and I promise we will answer it on the air. And I might regret that later, but that's what I get for asking for reviews. Uh, until next time, then, these are uh, the stories of law and or order. Mm-hmm.